puta matariki kārere whānoe, ko te tohu tēnā o te tau e. E te iwi, nau mai hoki mai anō ki te ahikā, ko marae arakurakua hau. Welcome back to Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand's weekly Māori Features Programme. E haere ake nei. Imagine seven generations from now, your descendants being affected by something genetic that you had absorbed into your bloodstream and brought home after fighting in an overseas war. Sound too science fiction? Well, that's a reality for many Vietnam War veterans. Stay tuned for the stories of Grace Tūrufenua, Joe Martini and Agent Orange. How has Māori art developed in the past 50 years? Well, I think one of the strongest um, developments that um, that I think Māori bring to visual art is um, the ability to reimagine um, uh, what art is. Nahiraka Mason tells us about Tūruki Tūruki Paneke Paneke when Māori art became contemporary, an exhibition at the Auckland Art Gallery. Celebratory sounds of capping ceremonies resonated all over the country in the past fortnight. Where were the graduate, Leith Porter Samuels and her whānau? After years of being away in cities, many Māori are choosing to return home to their rural roots. And in the case of Pangaru men, Wirumumachu, some things remain the same while others change. Bishop Pompalia is... Uh his remains have been returned to a small community called Motsuchi. His remains are interred in the altar of the church. Yeah, they press a button now and his remains will come up out of the altar. It's quite freaky, actually. Uh, <laughs> I bet it is. Puts a new meaning to uh, rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> and to the resurrection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. That's all coming up in Te Ahikā. Ko te At this moment, many Vietnam veterans and their whānau are heading home after the Tribute 08 celebrations in Wellington held over the Queen's birthday weekend. I sat outside a hotel room last year with my auntie, Grace Tūrufenua, and her friend Joe Martine, both of Ngāpuhi, speaking about the impact a war waged over 30 years ago, that's the Vietnam War, has now and will continue to have for generations to come, learning many of the soldiers employed secrecy which in a way haunts them still. Politically at the time was that the country was um, very unsupportive of the, of the people going to Vietnam because there was protesters everywhere and you couldn't even really say goodbye to your um, loved ones and your, darling. your darlings because it was all, they flew out and, and you know, top, it was all top secret, we didn't even know. Like it's not like how they go off to um, to um, the Solomons and Timor and all that. I mean, all the big ministers all come and see them off. It was nothing like that then. It was a time of um, quite hard. It was very hard, actually. And even, you know, in your day-to-day life when they were over there and you were at home, you, you couldn't tell many people that your husband was in Vietnam because... They will torment you, and especially 
um, and so you you learn to rely on just the clothes like your um, your army whanau, the ones who knew what and they didn't you know we just stayed together as a group of, of, of army wives and that's why army wives really still have that camaraderie today because of the time that we went through because you were you were really um, ostracized by the um, by the community and even you know just because it was such an unpopular war they didn't believe that they should have been there and so it was just bringing a lot of people of the time just didn't like it and so they sort of um, yeah, took it out on a lot of the whanau, the families that were left behind, especially if you're a young wife and mother. Yeah. Which she was. Grace Kake no Tikipuna he Udia Napuhi met Rakuraku Graham Turufinua he Udia Tsuhoi when he had already completed two tours. They met in 1969, a few months before he returned with the 161 battery to Vietnam, at which stage Grace was hapu with their oldest child, daughter Moana. Were you aware of that too? Yes. When you, yeah, and oh, how was that for you? It wasn't Vietnam when we went out, it was Malay. When we come back, we But still, everyone would just be like, oh, that's just the same. Oh, ignorant to the fact. Especially the, a lot of these uh, varsity and students, the clever people. Yeah. The clever people. Yeah. You know, then they're, they're running the country now. Joe Martini at Nornapuhi served in Vietnam, Borneo, yeah, yeah. and Malaysia. When we come home, they, you know, baby killers, all this killer. So we didn't say we were in, went out to Vietnam, we went out to Malaya, Borneo. Vietnam was just a word come up just last few years. And yet this year is 40 years for us since then. Did the army provide any support for you? Like we know that when our karaua and fathers came back from the Second World War, they were, you know, they found it very difficult to reintegrate back into the community, oh, back right. into their whanau. So by the time Vietnam had come along 30 or so years later, had did they provide some post-war nothing, support? Nothing, nothing whatsoever. A lot of the boys are still feeling the pain. And a lot of the whanau. Oh, yeah. Some of the RSAs wouldn't have us. They reckon it wasn't the war. And so, oh, yeah, we shouldn't have been there, all that carry on, eh? Jay Force and Capel. Yeah, I think Malaya was just recognised recently. Borneo was just a skirmish, they reckon. But still lost people and still had a, a VC out of it, so. Who was awarded that? Oh, one Gurkhasa. Did you realise at the time just how much of an impact it would have on your life? Oh, no, no. 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 Well, you know the the, the another part, you know. You see that that is it wasn't planned like this. Of course, even our officers and, and our corporal sergeants are dying. You know? NCOs, they dying just like the, the ordinary somebody. The ones that's out in the field with us in the jungle, they dying to say. So it's nothing planned, you know. It's through that. So there are, there's not only the psychological effects that the, the war had, but there's also the physical effects too, near. Our children, you and our children, 
Now grandchildren, medical will can't find the fault. They're, they're putting a name on you, you know. So I feel sorry for a lot of our buddies with their children, even my own children and grandchildren. A lot of side effects. And what would those side effects be? Oh. Well, one of my mothers now is about seven, and he got eye, eye problem. And it's, uh, a lot of them got to eat what I've got. A lot of it is, they say, is arthritis. I would say 90% of us, 90, 95% of us, actually in the jungle, will have, we will have about the same effects, you know, same problems in a sense. And what, what, what's, that been, what's that brought on by? Oh, well, it's all the conditions. The, the heat. Get, the, yeah, the heat and, and the monsoons. We've got the monsoon seasons and it's rain, rain, rain. You're sleeping in wet clothes and all that. Yeah. Jumping off trucks, jumping off choppers. But then you're young and fit because you train for it. And uh, now most, most of the boys, you know, knee problem, back problem. You know, all the joints, bad. And that's Malaysia and Borneo. And Vietnam. But, and one of the other side effects from Vietnam has the effects of um, the spraying Agent of Orange, what's called Agent Orange. Yeah. I think the government now has um, decided that there is a case to answer to Vietnam and their families, to the Vietnam veterans and their families, and that the Agent Orange spraying has affected some families, many families, and will go on affecting families for seven generations. Seven generations? Seven generations. Even could be more. Yeah. Is that how long it's... That's how long it will go down our line. See, when I first, when I first went with my wife, she couldn't sleep with me because of the smoke comes out of the skin. And I thought she was having me on. But when, when she got pregnant, she's a collapse. And I thought she was having me on. She said, you bloody stink. I said, I just come out of the shell. Most of her pregnancies, she went and lived knocking. I stayed back home. Most of her pregnancies. And when is it that you began to realise that there was something up? Maybe about, well, well, after, well you know, it's, there's always been problems there when I've been back, you know. So many things happening, it's just unreal, it's, it's hard to describe. See, look, the hair got grey, in a month it was all white. You know, doctors say, oh, you're just ageing. I started realising there was something on quite early in the, probably in the late 70s, probably early 80s, because the amount of tonguees that we're going to for Vietnam veterans. Who had only just who finished. Who had only just finished mm. and had, you know, had, um, were starting to get really severe, serious health problems. And then, you know, it just started, they just started dying. And I think that was the alarm bells started ringing for us as um, Vietnam families, that there's something not quite right, there's something wrong. We talked about it as, uh, as our own, in our own sort of social groups as families of Vietnam veterans. While there was an apology from the New Zealand government to the Vietnam veterans and their whānau earlier this week, on the 28th of May, for the veterans it has been a long time coming, as they have spent years seeking recognition for their pre- and post-Vietnam experiences. There had been lots of studies done that had been totally um, denied by different 
government agencies and um, even there was been that many reports we, we as families started to get really fed up because all we, was, all we were seeing was another report was getting done, another report was getting done, but nothing really was being done until I'm not sure when the government took on board that there was something really happening within Vietnam veterans' families and that the, um, the road show started coming around to, the, to all the different regions and that was the um, consultation and the it was a working group for Vietnam veterans and their families to tell their stories, to make submissions to the panel, yes. uh, whether it was written, verbal, or however way you wanted to do it, by video link, privately or publicly, and that was um, probably the first, and um, I think that's probably the probably the main driving force that that got Helen Clark and them saying yes there needs to be something now what can we do to help Vietnam veterans and their families and we were able to talk freely and openly there was no um, no one wanted to see your court at all or anything before the day you could either go there um, say what you first of all they said that we were only allowed to have a three minute time right. limit or, minute time and limit. like it was like oh. what? Mm. Three minutes to tell your tell the tell your your story, so we didn't take any notice of that, did we, Joe? We just talked what, whatever we wanted to say, because for a lot of us it was part of the healing, part of um, yeah, because you didn't really get chance to tell your story. How was it that they started making links between people dying? And oh, um, the Agent Orange. I think it was the mainly that um, uh, there was a lot of cancers that were identified. And with children too, there was a lot of Vietnam veterans, oh, yes. children that had been affected with different medical conditions, um, both medical and psychological. There was a very, very high uh, rate of suicide amongst um, children of vets of Vietnam veterans through depression, um, psychological program, yeah. And so they realised then that the, what we were, had been trying to tell them for years was really true. So, but I think the battle's not over. Oh no. <laughs> the battle's nowhere near over. They've only decided to um, cover certain cancers and not much else. Uh, certain disabilities, cleft palate, they haven't addressed the issue of uh, mental, um, psychological or anything like that, or skin. So there's lots skin of, disorders. yeah. So there's still, um, there are still a big battle to be going on. So it appears that the battles are going to end up being taken up by your mokpuna? I think so. It'll just go down our families. It's there already. Yeah. For the seven generations. Yeah. The Vietnam children of Vietnam veterans now are starting to stand up and speak for themselves. Because they now are young adults. They're, a lot of them are in their 30s. And they now are wanting to join the fight. Because it's a fight for them. And for them, them of course. 
we encourage all our buddies to make their children, uh, make them aware, to make the doctors aware yeah. that they are Vietnam veterans and make sure that it goes in there like that. Even my own children, yeah. they won't do it, so they go up with them. Yeah. And the doctor says, oh, what's it? Now, as long as you record it. It's got to be recorded. Got to be recorded. For both Joe Martinet as a Vietnam veteran and Grace Tudefinua as a widow of a veteran and mother of children, the guilt and responsibility is immense. So, you know, for the future of my family, I have to be the driver at the moment because there's no one to drive for them. Um, I've told my sons they must tell their doctors watch their children, that they are Vietnam veteran families. And uh, for the my mokopuna that I've got at the moment, they, they are uh, get cardiologists because it seems to be something that's happening in, in my line, in my husband's line, or that they're just, I believe it's it is an angel orange thing because um, it's affected me twice with um, losing a husband at age 45 and a daughter age 29. So, um, for, the, for the children and the mokos, it has to be, there has to be something for them. So too, and the thing is, I'm really, it worries me that this thing could affect as for seven to eight generations. You know, even though we've been left with this tanifa on our backs, <laughs> we're proud of the men, our men who served, oh. and uh, we'll always be proud of them. Grace to the Finua, me Joe Martini, no Napuhi Rawa. Ko Maraya Rakurakuaho. There's too many of you crying Brother, brother, brother There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, Father We don't need you see, war is not the answer, for only love can comprehend. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. Picket lines and picket signs, don't punish me. Talk to me so you can see
seen them trooping through your city streets wearing gowns and trenches. Those are the hats. You may have even piled into buses and cars to travel miles to sing Waiata at their ceremony. No moment is prouder for a whānau than when one of their own graduate. Anatapiata met a few. That's whānau, graduates and staff at the Massey University graduation in Wellington earlier this week. Kilda Leith, you received your tohu today, uh, Bachelor of Midwifery. How's it? It's got. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's, that's a fantastic feeling. Um, fantastic use for myself to know that I can do that, even at this age. And what age? That age, <laughs> or oh, fifty? And um, yeah, it's just wonderful for, our, for for my whanau, but for our people mostly. Why midwifery? Why? Because it all begins at the beginning. Andrea McElroy and I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Massey University's Wellington campus and today it's been a real privilege to be part of the Māori celebration to honour all of our Māori graduates who are going through the graduation ceremonies this year. Why is this type of occasion important? Well, I think it's particularly important to Māori people, but also to the university. It's important for Māori people because they're able to bring their whānau and celebrate with the important people in their lives who've been instrumental in helping them to get through their education. And sometimes getting a degree can be a very long process. And it's that help that they get from their whānau, from their, their family and so on that really can help them at times when they're a bit down. So um, it, it, this is the opportunity for them to say thank you to those people and for the university also to say thank you to that, that wider Māori community who have supported our students. But it's also a time for us in the university to acknowledge Māori culture and how important that is to us in New Zealand. Um, so we're very proud of our Māori students and we're very pleased that we're able to uh, celebrate it with them in, in their traditional ways.
that's a very proud whānau of Leith Porter Samuels with their waiata at her graduation in a Bachelor of Midwifery. She graduated with 13 others across four of Massey University's five colleges from the Wellington campus. There's been a lot of attention lately about Māori flocking to Australia en masse, acquiring the name Mozzies, Māori Aussies. In the 1950s and 1960s, there was a different kind of migration, Māori moving from their rural kāinga to the cities. Now, often after years away, many are returning home. Wirimu Machu returned to Pangaru after 40 years in Auckland. He talks here with Pākehā, Jenny McIntyre. We're winning our kōrero. Mitsumitsi is named after this, uh, the licking of the blood off the rocks. And that's how this place got that name. After uh, fighting on the shores of the Hokianga Harbour of uh, Mitsumitsi, um, there was a lot of blood shed on, on these rocks. And Māori used to lick the blood off these stones. And that's why this place got that name, Miti Miti. Miti Miti means? Lick, to lick the blood off the, off the rocks. William Desmond Matthews. Um, I come from a small community over the, the other side of the Hokianga Harbour, the north side of the Hokianga Harbour, uh, a small community called Pangaru. Might be familiar with that area because of uh, Mother of the Nation, Fina Cooper. She also comes from there. Everybody in Hokianga Harbour is related to Fina Cooper. Yeah. She's your great auntie. Yes. No my harumaki araituru. No my harumaki Hokianga. Now you know why our ancestor Kupe left two guardians at the entrance to the Hokianga Harbour. Right, look at the scenery. This is a big fridge for us, us Māori people. This is where all our, we get, gather all our kai. We used to come along the beach here and camp. The Hokianga Harbour is uh, home to a lot of our sea mammals too. And just last month I, um, I woke to see five orca whales going out of here. It was an awesome sight. So you find a lot of our, our fur seals living over here. Great white, they come in here. They have their pups and they leave. Great white sharks. That's right. Do you have dolphins here too? Dolphins? A lot of dolphins here. Opo, our uh, friendly dolphin that was around when I was, I was only a little kid. The, uh, the people in Rangi Point used to use Opo to take them home at night time. Opo, the crazy dolphin, they call them. Mm-hmm. I, I was brought up in a Nico house. A, a Fare Nico. The Nico house, it was an uh, awesome, awesome house, a beautiful house, nice and warm. It wasn't too big. It was just a house, just one room, a small open fire. It burnt 24-7, um, bare ground for the floor. Never had uh, wood, never had timber floors. And I was brought up in a box, um, and the fire was burning all the time. We didn't have electricity. So we didn't have a fridge to keep our food. Our food was, our meat was hung in the fireplace 
and the smoke kept the flies away. And it lasted for ages. Yeah. Māori bacon, they call it. We used to look after pigs. That's food. Um, cattle with beef was uh, food. The fronds from the, from the Nico was plaited. And because the Nico leaves, uh, they act like drain. The roof, the fronds from the Nico overhung the ones from the, from the walls. So it doesn't run into the walls, you see. But it, it never leaked, that house. Never. It was dry, warm. It must have been exciting in the storm to hear the rain running off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we, only, we didn't have a door. Uh, we had a, a, a super sack for a door. And when it gets windy, the wind will blow it open all the time. What we did was we wet the sack, wet it, make it heavy so the wind can't blow it. Mm-hmm. What do you remember of those nights? Because there wouldn't be any light to keep you awake at night. Did you go to bed early and wake with the dawn? We always made our fun. Our own. We always entertained ourselves. Uh, stick games. Yeah. Music. And a lot of the kids were um, home birth. Um, because the hospital is on, on this side of the harbour. A lot of the mum, the mothers used to have their babies at home. Do you remember some brothers and sisters being born at home? Oh, yes. I, I know a lot of people. My, my dad used to be um, a midwife. Mm. How many siblings did you have? Eight. We had a big family. Uh, my dad used to take me to the bush when I was uh, eight years old to learn survival skills, how to live off the land. And they also took you to the beaches, camp out, and teach you how to fish, seafood, uh, shellfish, what to eat and what not to eat in the forest. We used to walk to school. We used to get hungry. And we used to eat a lot of trede, nico, on our way to school. Trede is what our wood pigeon live on, kiriru. When the middle run out, they'll change over to trede. And the trede is uh, it's a black, it's like a prune. You notice the tea tree, also called manuka. You have it, smell it, beautiful. It is, does smell lovely. <laughs> Named the tea tree by Captain Cook. Took a few branches with him of the tea tree and it went dry on him on, on his boat, on his return trip back to England. They added water to it and see what happened. And they drank it. Tea tree. <laughs> Be very healing drink. Yes, yes. Quite bitter? Yes, yeah. What plants did you use for medicine? Toot. Tupakihi. Is that the same toot that's caused the toxic honey? Yes, yes. So how did you use it for medicine? External use only. The purpose of that plant means broken bones, deep bruising, torn ligament. So you put it on as a poultice? Yes. Everything in the forest our ancestors used, our parents used. It's all been handed down. And um, we're handing it down to our kids. This is a kowowo, a Māori wind instrument. It's a very spiritual instrument. It was played by our ancestors to, to get their people together. And Does it call to your ancestors here? Aye. You can feel it every time you hear the kowowo. You can feel the wairua in this place. Even those mountains, uh, some places you can't go to. Yeah, They're tougher places. To, yes, 
places where there's been a burial? Yes. If you take anything from these type of places, you might get hurt. You get sick. And I've, uh, I've experienced that. A few of my friends have got sick by taking things what they shouldn't have. Um, what sort of things have they taken? Taonga. Taonga. Treasures. So these were treasures that had been buried with the, yes. with the person? Yes. You don't touch those sort of things. They were put there for a reason, and you should leave things alone. So what were you able to do to heal from that so that nothing happened to you? We take them to the, the old people. Karakia, we take them in there, and a lot of them, they scream with all this pain inside. Some of them lose, lose everything. They just go crazy. So did that happen to some of your friends? Mm, yeah. You can always tell there's something wrong somewhere with this person. And we always ask them, where you been? What did you do? What did you take? And nine times out of ten, yes, they've taken something, even a little thing. Like what? A tiki or a carved bone, a patu, tayaha, a wooden carving. Young people, they're curious, you know, we, we all uh, I found, I found a waka about that long. Walking home from school one day. I so still that's, got a, that's a metre and a half? Yeah. Where did you find it? Over Pangaru. Me and my cousin, and uh, there was a digger cleaning out this drain, waterways, down to the sea. And there were some eels. He was leaving some eels behind, so we jumped in the river, in the drain, and started catching these eels. As we were going along the drain, this thing was sticking up like that. And the digger bucket had chipped the front off it. So we dug it out with our hands and pulled it out. It was a waka. And it's amazing. An ornamental waka. Yeah. Beautiful thing. And it's been carved by the old people. I took it home and my mother told me to get it out of the house. I was only about, oh, seven, six or seven. Yeah. Very proud of what you found. I I still got it too. I didn't leave it with my parents because I knew they would give it away to Fina Cooper. When my mum told me to get it out of the house, I took it down to my grandfather. And when I knocked on his door, he yelled out to bring it in. He already knew that I was coming with this thing, which is Tonga. And he knew that by no telephone. He no. just knew that by telepathy, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. And I took it into his house. He was sitting at the table. He said, oh, yeah. I put this waka on the table, and he said, oh, where'd you get it from? And I told him. It was just down below the convent school. He said, oh, yeah, you found it. You, you keep it. Uh, we used to go to church, Catholic church. Went to convent school, taught by uh, nuns. They were strict. The only thing I learned at uh, convent school was amen. You had to respect your nuns, the priests. Bishop Pompelia, his, uh, his remains have been returned to a small community called Mutsuchi. His remains are interred in the altar of the church. Yeah, they press a button now and there's remains will come up out of the altar. It's quite freaky, actually. Uh, <laughs> I bet it is. Puts a new meaning to uh, rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> Into the resurrection. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm. We're at uh, Urupa in Pakanai. This cemetery is the most colourful I've ever seen. It's absolutely full of flowering plants. <laughs> oh, this how people... Respect their loved ones. I just pray to the gods to safeguard our, uh, our tupuna, our ancestors, to let them rest in peace. And um, 
turn around to us, the living. We must not forget us, karakia to us too. The end of Haratua May marks the ascendancy of Pleiades or Matariki. Head to our webpage radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Tiahika for a stack of information about Matariki. Doing anything exciting for Matariki? Email us, well, me, at Tiahika at radioNZ.co.nz. As for me, I will be with the Fano in Kaitoki next week celebrating World Environment Day, which is on June the 4th, by the way planting along Pakuratahi River and learning all about composting and organic farming. Te Ahika will have that in a few weeks. Other events include two visual arts exhibitions happening in Auckland. One, He Hate Mea Nui o Te Ao, is a collaboration between Kaitahu, the Mana Whenua Forum and Te Ropuraranga o Tamaki Makaurau. That opens the 6th of June, while the other revisits the works of five now senior Māori artists, first exhibited in 1958 when they were starting out. Turiki Turiki Paneke Paneke, that's the name of an exhibition, and Nahiraka Mason is the curator for that exhibition. Kia ora Nahiraka. Uh, Why is it momentous that this exhibition is happening? Kia ora mai mo I think it is um, uh, uh, momentous because... Not only does the exhibition commemorate and celebrate um, a significant turning point in our history, our art history, um, it, it also um, defines um, a moment where something really special occurred. And um, that happened in 1958, when the first contemporary Māori art exhibition was staged here in Auckland at University of Auckland, the at the uh, Princess Street Adult Education Rooms. Mm. Um, and just with the, the the dates of the exhibition, the 1958 exhibition opened um, in June and it, it's uh, timely, I think, that 50 years later we um, opened to commemorate um, this event. And would it be fair to say that the artists that are in that exhibition, there's Arnold Wilson... Ralph Hortere, Muru Walters, Katharina Mataira and Selwyn Wilson. Aye. They're still producing works 50 years later. Well, yes, they're, they're in their mid to, uh, mid-70s to, um, to their 80s, so they um, represent, you know, quite a... I mean, it is their life commitment to making art and um, certainly with, with uh, Arnold Wilson and... Uh, Ralph Hortere, um, they never stopped making art since those early days. And, of course, Katerina um, has um, shifted her focus into writing. Mm. So, of course, we know that um, you know she's um, uh, extremely committed to especially Udil writing. And, um, yes, uh, you know, it is absolutely true that they have dedicated... You, you don't use that term these days so much for um, people in the... In the um, creative arts, but um, they certainly are a unique group of dedicated people. And Nahiraka, what was the response of the uh, patrons when they saw the exhibition back in 1958? Oh, goodness. Well, to be truthful, Mariah, the if it wasn't for the Auckland Star reviewing the exhibition, um, and it of course made um, headline news, um, you know, we, we might have, this might have just slipped into history. 
um, very quietly. Um, but the response from the people who attended the exhibition, you know, was very positive and and um, understanding that these that the, the types of artworks that they were seeing sometimes for the first time um, didn't resemble anything in the imaginations of the people at the time um, that they had um, seen before art that was made by Māori people. So, you know, it was um, in, in its context, in its time period, um, Māori art was um, thought to be uh, art that was displayed in museums um, and of course our Auckland Museum here is wonderful um, examples of what people imagined Māori art was at that time but of course um, I'm um, proposing that this exhibition um, is a turning point um, moment because it is it reflects back to us that Māori art um, was contemporary in 1958. And it was pushing at the boundaries of how even Māori themselves saw art as well, Nina. Well, com- well I, I, kai te tika tera, e, e ngari, um, I have to say that um, the forms that were being um, um, carved or sculpted or uh, the paintings that were being made, um, while they, while the materiality of the artwork was was new, the ideas were um, still being extended out from what was being uh, talked about as as uh, traditional art. But the, these things never stay fixed in one time, as we know. Um, you know, the creative um, minds of people don't—they're not stagnant things. They they uh, grow and um, they pattern over time. Um, so this is this is how we know that things change. Um, and these people were at the forefront of that. And they, they went on to have careers that fed into developing younger Māori, Māori artists as well, didn't they? So, for instance, Arnold Wilson, he ended up working in that art programme that used to go through schools? Yes, yes, Māori Pakeaka. Aye. Aida. Well, look, um, you know, it has to be said that they, as educators, because they did their 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 training was as teachers and artists, um, and in, and as craftspeople, they have been the source of inspiration to generations of new artists. Um, and probably their influences, because um, as Arnold is still, um, act, he, he still actively teaches. So, you know, he's on to his fourth generation of um, <laughs> students. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's quite, a, quite um, mind-boggling, really, mm. to, to even think about it. And keeping in mind, they were, you know, 17 and 18 year olds when they left home to start training. So, mm-hmm. you know, this really is the the story of their life. Yeah. What sort of developments have has Māori art made from then to now? Well, I think one of the strongest um, developments that um, that I think Māori bring to visual art is um, the ability to reimagine um, uh, what art is. So you know, like their ancestors, they're not they're not um, fixed in one uh, way of understanding something. So their ability to um, to reimage that in another way is, um, in my view, is always fresh. Uh, it has a, a connection, obviously, to who they are and where they come from. Um, and, and it's also uh, you know this you might hear this word from time to time around um, artists, but. 
I do think they have been um, visionary in their in their making because they cause us to um, change the way we think about what Māori art is. And you know, maybe it's even uh, revolutionary as well because um, they make us ask ourselves, you know, God, what is that? Mm. Um, who, who are these people? <laughs> Um, you know, and I think it's it's good to have uh, to have these things um, in our history and as physical things that we can look at and talk about um, because they remind us of uh, the creative process, I suppose. Now there are twenty five works in the exhibition. Yes. How mammoth a task was it for you to look back at the original works and select those twenty five? Oh gosh, look. I think everyone in my business, um, you know, would agree that working with this generation of artists, you, they, they have so much experience, and um, they bring so much wisdom to to your own thinking when you come to do, make an exhibition. So, they they have been completely generous and um, and uh, giving. Um, so they made my job easy. You can chart their their art making just by looking at what they've done. Um, and you know the stories that they bring to uh, what they were doing and why they did something and and how something evolved from one thing to another. Um, you know they they just um, have no amount of stories to um, or difficulty in telling these stories. Um, and it's it's also with a um, you know it's it's so inclusive. They include other people in these stories. Yeah. Know what I mean, and um, do you think that's the strength, Nahiraka, of being Tuturu Māori? Well, I have to say it is. It is completely their experience. So how they are um, is um, from where they come from, and that I, you know, the the their their own um, learnings from their elders and um, and their parents. Um, and the kinds of um, um, support they were given as young people leaving, coming to the city and studying, and their um, openness to other um, ideas around art. It makes them, a, um, I mean, in some ways it, they are very rounded people, hmm. and, and I mean that in a you know, philosophical, <laughs> educative, and, a, and um, just a, a wise a wise way mm. because it makes them radical as well they didn't start out in, as artists to become famous or mm. or to be radical in any way they were just doing what they loved um and yes of course it comes from um their background and and um all the things that they have been privileged to learn from their own elders and from their own um teachers art art school teachers and their Contemporaries and colleagues that they borrowed from each other and experimented together with, you know, wood and metal and stone and clay and, you know what I mean? There was a very mm. sharing and um, supportive environment, and um, that extended out to their community. So they weren't just teachers that you know taught between nine and three. They they lived in their communities and um, they were available to their communities and you know very. Um, Open ways, um, including their you know Pākehā communities, uh, friendships that they've maintained since teachers' training college, and um, you know contemporaries that they taught with over time, and 
you know, I think their friendship is such a wonderful um, example of, mm. of, um, of um, you know, how, how things uh, go really right. Mm. Yeah. And that there's enough room for everybody. Totally. Totally. Everything was inclusive in their day and in their terms. Um, you know, they, they um, were able to relate to, you know, European art as much as they were to, you know, carving styles from all around Aotearoa um, or tukutuku patterns or, um, you know, making hook rugs or macrame or um, um, forming clay into forms. Um, abstract or, or figurative, you know what I mean? They they were just people, people. Because the five artists, yes. that's Arnold Wilson, Ralph Hortere, Muru Walters, Katharina Mataira and Selwyn Wilson, they've been prolific in their careers as well, haven't they? They've moved across all mediums. Yes, I mean, you know, the number of people I've met who were their students, um, you know, and these are, um, are people in their... Um, um, middle to late middle age who were students of these people and you know the learnings that um, they have been able to pass on um, you know the, the inspiration that they give is um, across all disciplines has been uh, just uh, amazing you know with someone like um, Muru Walters who's now Bishop Muru Walters <laughs> includes uh, theory in his mm. um, um, you know, theological teachings. So it's not that, you know, it didn't matter what field they moved in. They carried those basic learnings um, across into their um, chosen fields. And, of course, they've had many fields that they've excelled in, not just um, the one, of course. The exhibition at Auckland Art Gallery, so it runs from the 24th of May through to the 24th of August. So I would encourage all those um, students of these artists and even the current generation of um, artists to come along and see where the Auckland version of contemporary Māori art started. Nā Hiraka Mason, nō Nai Tūhoi, Indigenous Curator at Auckland City Art Gallery. Kaputa matariki kārere whānue, ko te tohu tēnā o te taue. Matariki reappears whānue starts its flight, being the sign of the new year. Ko Rosemary Rangi Tawira hau heuri whakaheke nō te waka uma tātua ano Ngāti Manawa, Ngāti Hui, Ngāti Whare, Ngāti Koro, Ngā Hapu. Kia ora no Rosemary, and that's us for another week. Ko te waia te whakamutanga nā ariana tikau, ko matariki te ingoa o te waiata nei. Nau mai hoki mai anō atira wiki i te iwi, where we've got a special on Takaparafau, Bastion Point. He mihi atu ki nā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, ko marae a rakraku tēnei, mai te ahi kā, ki a tātou katoa, mauri ora. Ko matariki Oh, 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 oh,
Oh, my God.